The first Bible reading this morning is from Proverbs chapter 11, verses 16 to 31, which on the Black Church Bibles is on page 550. A kind-hearted woman gains honour, but ruthless men gain only wealth. Those who are kind benefit themselves, but the cruel bring ruin on themselves. A wicked person earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward. Truly, the righteous attain life, but whoever pursues evil finds death. The Lord detests those whose hearts are perverse, but he delights in those whose ways are blameless. Be sure of this, the wicked will not go unpunished, but those who are righteous will go free. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout, a beautiful woman who shows is, no, is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. The desire of the righteous ends only in good, but the hope of the wicked only in wrath. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. People who curse the one who hoards grain but they pray God's blessings on the one who is selling. Whoever seeks good finds favour, but evil comes to the one who searches for it. Those who trust in their riches will fall, but righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Whoever brings ruin on their family will inherit only wind, and the fool will be servant to the wise. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and the one who is wise saves lives. If the righteous receive their due on earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner. Morning, the second Bible reading is from Titus, and you can find it on page 1030. Um, it's Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, or if you've got your book, it's on page 20. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. My name is uh, Paul, if I haven't met you, and this is Betsy, and we have the joy this morning of a, a team teaching on this passage in Titus 2. 
Uh, on, the, on the screen is a quote uh, from one of my heroes of the faith called David Jackman. He says this, uh, the watching world is not hugely impressed by emotional hype and extremism of church. It's not attracted to powerful preaching or clever advertising, but it is attracted by ordinary people living ordinary lives who demonstrate extraordinary godliness seen in love. And he's right. He is so right. What, what people notice is when people like you and I live different lives, lives marked by kindness, self-control, respect, goodness, faithfulness, and, and people spot that and people see that. I think of my friend uh, Steve. I met him at university. Uh, Steve and Caleb did a, a law degree together. They were both rowers. They were both gym junkies. Caleb was a Christian, and Steve was not. And Steve came from a home where his parents were, were quite uh, oppressive. Dad was always disappointed with him. Mum was a bit angry. And then Steve went to live with Caleb's parents, and he saw something different. In Caleb's home, he saw a family where they were kind and respectful and encouraging, and Caleb's dad really just got alongside Steve and just witnessed to him. And then one day, Steve asked to go to church. And when Steve went to church, he saw his whole family of, of men and women who were nice to one, one another. And so when the preacher stood up and actually preached about Jesus Christ, of course Steve gave his life to Christ because he'd just seen love in action. He'd seen grace in action in the, the family, in the home. And Steve's a Christian today. Steve is a pastor today. And when he gives his testimony, he says he was loved into the kingdom. He was loved into the kingdom because he saw grace-shaped living. And I'm sure that is true for many of us today, that we all have somebody in our life where it was something about them, the way that they lived, the way they acted, the, the way they spoke, the way they interacted, where they related as church, think, wow, that is hugely different. And that's where we're heading today. I've called this, this sermon, Good Living That Adorns the Gospel. Good living that adorns the gospel. The, the way that we relate as church, as, as a family, that, that people should see Jesus in us and Jesus through us. Let me ask you, how do we communicate to the watching world the extraordinary love of Christ? How do we witness to the watching world that that our Father in heaven is so gracious and so forgiving and so sacrificial. How do people hear the gospel? Now, we, we could hire the biggest auditorium and get the most eloquent speaker with, who would preach with passion and with persuasion. We could do that. We could hire a bus and advertise, come see Alpha. Uh, we could have the most snazzy website and the most spectacular Sunday services. But the way the scriptures say that we're going to communicate the gospel is through us, through you, and through me, and the way that we live, and the way that we relate. And they should see love in action. Because the reality is, my friends, is that people watch us. People watch the way that Christians 
live. And people make a judgment on church based on what they see in your life. And you'll either make the gospel so beautiful or so repulsive. You'll either adorn the gospel or you'll make it a bit poisonous. Uh, I get excited by this. I think of the people who uh, perhaps are Christians today because they saw something in my life 20 years ago in what I said or what I did, and I haven't seen it for 20 years, but, but at some point in their life something happens where they think, oh, I remember Paul and he, he acted like that, and he was a Christian. Maybe I should investigate Jesus Christ. And I just, I just imagine all these people in, in glory who have come to Christ, and I don't know them but they saw something different about the way that I lived. Doesn't that excite you? That is Titus chapter 2, adorning the gospel. This is the motivation. This this chapter is not just a list of things that we must do or we must be. The motivation is what drives it. Verse 5, so that, this is the reason we live different lives, so that no one maligns the word of God. So when people see Christians relating with love and kindness and care and we're not slanderous or hostile or full of hatred, they go, wow, maybe there might just be something in this Bible thing. Or down to verse 8, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So the opponents, the people in your life who who claim to hate church and to hate Jesus, the people who right now are triggered by Christians and and they think that we are homophobic and bigoted and misogynist, those people who, who might have all the intellectual arguments, but when they think about us and they think about our lives and they think about the way that we relate and the way that we live, they have nothing bad to say about us. When they think church, they think, oh, those people, they live beautiful lives. Wouldn't that be nice for people to think that about church? Or verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. That's the word adorned. Beautiful, compelling, magnetic. People see grace and kindness and mercy and love and compassion. We're oozing grace and people will say, I want what they've got. So here's the task of the pastor. Here's the task of the leader. Verse 1, you, Titus, the pastor, the leader, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. So, So our role as leader is to teach you and not just teach you the top 10 tips on self-help and relationships. But we're to teach doctrine, and that is not boring. We, we get to teach you about God and who he is and his character and his promises and his prohibitions. And we don't just teach you doctrinal facts. Our, our task is not just to help you to pass a doctrine exam. Because it says in verse 1, what is appropriate to sound doctrine, literally in accord with sound doctrine, the lifestyle that goes with sound doctrine. So we don't sit in church week in, week out, and and learn all these facts about God and think, oh, that's nice. 
It should utterly transform the way that you live and the way that you relate. And church should be different. Let me say, I, I do not want this church to be labelled by words like hypocrisy, scandal, failures, fakes. That is terrible. I want this church to be known for its love, its kindness, its compassion. And the problem that the church that Paul is writing to in Crete is that in Crete, the, the older men and the older women were irreverent with too much wine. They were slanderous. They were gossiping. They were lying. And the older uh, men demanded respect because they were old. And the younger women were lazy and flirtatious. And the younger guys were competitive and arrogant and proud. And this is God's church. In God's church, when you have anger and immorality and irreverence and slander and factions and dishonesty, and people look at church and say, if that is church, if that's what it means to follow Jesus Christ, I don't want a bar of that. And that is deeply, deeply sad. If they look at us and they go, wow, I want what they've got, then we get to point them to Christ. And if I'm honest, when I look at passages like Titus and they start to give instructions to both men and women, there's a, there's a part of me that immediately pushes back and doesn't want to hear it. And so some of you may have had that reaction during the Bible reading and think, okay, here we go again. But before we get into the specific instructions for men and women in the book of Titus, I want us to take a step back and look and see how this applies in the life of all Christians. An important thing to recognize is in this passage, this isn't just a list of good things to do, check off good behavior, but rather they are the changes that happen in the lives of all believers because of the work of the Holy Spirit. If you're living a life that adorns the gospel, one that makes the teachings of Christ our Savior attractive, then it's evidenced by what Paul calls the fruits of the Spirit, regardless of age, stage, gender, all Christians are called to live a life that reflects holiness and that can only be brought about by the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. Galatians 5 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when I look at Titus 2, that is all over that passage. I see love, I see faith, I see goodness, I see self-control, I see kindness. I see a lot of the evidence of the Spirit at work. And the truth is this doesn't happen in a vacuum. The fruits of the Spirit aren't just in me. You have to see me interact to know if I'm kind, to know if I'm self-controlled. Because the response of the growth of the Spirit will be a richer and fuller life lived out in rich and full relationship. As we bear the fruit of the Spirit, we will love differently. We will be people who have joy in the midst of heartache. We will long for peace in our relationships. We will be long-suffering and have patience when under trials. We will be kind to those around us. We will long to know and do good. We will be faithful in our work, our life, and our relationships. We will not be aggressive, but long to be gentle with people, and we will practice self-control. And that different way of living will make the gospel more attractive. So as we return to look at the specific instructions for women 
and men in our passage in Titus, keep in mind the ways in which each of these behaviors mirrors out what the working of the Holy Spirit looks like in the life of all believers. We're going to start with the older man in verse 2. And just so you know that older in Crete meant over 40. <laughs> so for those who are over 40, like, oh, really, I'm older. I remember preaching this, I remember preaching this passage about 10 years ago, and someone said to me, Paul, I think you think you're a younger man, <laughs> but you're actually older. So if you are older, I think older men in general by our nature, we, we tend to be a bit more cynical, a bit more critical, a bit more irritable, more patronizing perhaps. But if you encountered Jesus Christ, if you encountered his grace, what are we supposed to be like? Verse 2, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in endurance. And the two words for older men here are, are dignity and maturity. We'd have dignity, verse 2, temperate, so we're to be level-headed, to think carefully, to not lash out, to not to be known for our sharp tongue or our anger. But we're to be self-controlled, verse 2, that word means uh, we are wise, we are disciplined, we are careful before we act. But I love in verse 2 that phrase, worthy of respect. We are worthy of respect. The, the older man doesn't demand respect. You ever met this older man and say, respect me because I am your elder? No, we respect someone because they're full of dignity. You can't help but respect them because they have this, this gravitas. They have this wholesome living. You think, I want to be like that. And they're full of maturity. They're, they're sound in the faith. They're healthy in their walk with God. They are healthy in their love for people. They're healthy in their perseverance. Because what age does to you is it, as you walk with God for, for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, as you, you go through the highs and lows of life, as you press on in Jesus through all the, the tough times, there's something profoundly beautiful about this older man who is holding on to Jesus, who is full of humility and just oozes grace. And I think of David who really modeled to me how to handle disappointments well. And I think of Harold who modeled to me grieving well. I think of Dick who modeled contentment well. And can I say, church, we desperately need those older men here at the Bridge Church. We need those older men who will model integrity and wisdom and model what it is to be faithful to your wife for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We need the older men who have lifelong friendships. You've done life together. We don't want bitter older men. We want beautiful old men here in church. We don't want grumpy old men. We want men who are full of gratitude. And to be honest, I, I crave more of these older men in my own life, always have, those kind of spiritual fathers who are 10, 20, 30 years older. And of course, some of us here are older men. And the question is, is would those two words, dignity and maturity, define you? And as I was reflecting on the harm that older men can yeah, as I was re reflecting on the harm that older men can cause the church when they are angry and aggressive, I thought of how as women we can feel unsafe in that environment. 
Um, but the older men who model dignity, maturity, and faithfulness, and love create an environment where we know that we will be led well, and we know that we can trust our leadership. So let's look at the older women. Verse 3 starts, Likewise teach the older women to be reverent in the ways that they live their lives. And if I'm honest, that was the, my favorite thing when I realized, when I was reading this passage, what the word reverent meant. Because the word reverent meant holy or acting as becoming a priestess. So this is a woman who has spent time in the presence of God. She knows who she is and her identity is in Christ. This is a woman with a sense of godly maturity and leadership that only comes through spending time with the Lord and knowing him. This is a woman who has a humble confidence because her identity is in him. And I don't know about you, but I feel different around people that I know have a deep and abiding faith in God. I want to spend more time with them. I want to learn from them. And when they make those statements like God is good and he is faithful, I believe them. They don't feel trite. They don't feel like platitudes. They don't feel like a Band-Aid to make the problem go away. It feels true because they've lived and experienced the goodness of God. I want to be around those people and I want to learn from them. When I was in grad school, there was a woman named Marilyn that was in our class, and she was in her 30s, or sorry, she was in her 70s, and the rest of us were in our 20s and 30s. And Marilyn didn't talk much, but when she talked, I listened, because she had a lot to say. Because you see, Marilyn was a black American woman. She had lived through segregation. She had lived through the civil rights movement in the U.S., she had had significant childhood trauma. And so when she said, God is faithful, when she said forgiveness is important, when she said there is power in redemption, I believed her. <laughs> I wanted to learn from her because it was true. I had seen that in her life, and it didn't feel shallow. There was something different, and she had a real depth in what she had to say. She reflected Christ-likeness because she had spent time in his presence. And this is the type of woman Paul is describing when he says that an older woman should be reverent. Now, as we read further into verse 3, he challenges older women on some behaviors that I think do increase as we get older. He says that older women are not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine. I'm sorry, but this is too easy for me to picture. A circle of women, wine glass in hand, gossiping, being a little critical, being a little judgy. And maybe as the hours pass, the wine flows, the speaking gets a little bit more and flowy as well. And the next thing you know, you've spent an hour grumbling and complaining and being critical. And I, I think this is so, we, are, we can all be guilty of this in and out of the church. I think this is a real temptation that women have as we get older. And when, you can, when you're spending time in that circle, I know for me, like I've, I've been in that circle before and I've left and wondered, are they talking about me now that I'm gone? Because we just spend an hour. What excludes me from being the subject of conversation now that I've left? And I think this is a temptation that we have. And yet when we experience the opposite of that, it feels different. <laughs> 
When we spend time with a friend and we throw out a name or make a critical statement and they don't engage, they kind of shut it down or change the subject, we notice because it feels different. And when I compare the relationships I've had when I've been in a circle that feels like a den of vipers to those relationships where I leave feeling encouraged and uplifted, there's a difference. I feel safe. I feel secure. I feel encouraged. And I can think of women in this church that when I spend time with you, when I leave coffee, it's life-giving. I feel better about myself. I feel encouraged. And it makes the gospel, it makes living this life more attractive. I want to be more like that. I want more of that in my life and less of the other. And lastly, the kicker here for me is the final encouragement Paul gives to older women in verse 3. He tells older women to teach what is good. He wants them to be the teachers. He tasks these older women to help raise up the next generation of younger women through how they live their lives and how they model the gospel. He empowers the older women to be the ones to encourage the younger women. And this is different than the wording for the, the men. The, Titus is the one tasked with teaching them. But in this case, he puts the responsibility on the older women. And I am so thankful for the women who have poured into my life and the fact that God calls women to be these reverent teachers leading and caring for the next generation. I want to say it's not just older women teaching the younger women. I have learned so much from the older women in church. I think of Susie and I think of Penny. I think of Sue in my church in Oxford. And there was just something beautiful about them. They had this reverence. They had this holiness. I never heard them gossip, never heard them slander. And I learned so much from them. And what I love is down in verse 4 when he says, then they can urge the younger women. The word for urge there is the word to illuminate or to shine a light. It's almost like that the, the younger people need help from the older people because we, we don't know it all. And I love overhearing conversations where you have a, an older woman saying to a younger woman, it's okay, I've been there. Maybe you want to try this. Maybe you should do this. Uh, I want to say if you're an older woman here this morning, we need you. Our society kind of sidelines people when they get over 50 or over 60, but actually in the church it is different. We, we cannot be a church where everybody up front is under 30 or under 35, as though we know it all age 35. We don't. If you are sitting here to, today as an older person, say over 40, that don't hold all that gold to yourself. Invest in people who are younger than you. Share what God has taught you. Point them to Christ because we need you. You've got such an important role to play. Before Betsy speaks again, let me clarify a few things about verse 4. When he says, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and to be pure, to, to be busy at home, etc., Paul assumes a culture where it was the norm for women to be married with children. That is not necessarily the norm today. These verses are not addressing career women. They're not talking about mothers in the secular workplace. That is not his purpose. Paul is talking to women in the church who are claiming to be Christians but the way that they're conducting themselves is more like the world. They are sitting around, being idle, wasting time, gossiping, bad-mouthing their husbands, and slipping into morality. That was the issue he's addressing. 
So over to you, Betsy. Yeah, so what about these younger women? What does the Bible teach us on their behavior? So the first thing we see in verses four to five are a few things that kind of revolve around the same thing. And Paul's already kind of mentioned this. He says that the older women are to teach or urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be busy at home, and to be subject to their husbands, which I mean, kind of, you know, we hear that. It does kind of make us brace here in the 21st century for a lot of reasons. But the thing is, I don't think Paul is saying that this is an exhaustive list. This is the only thing that the young women should be doing, but rather that the temptation for younger women may be to get distracted by all the other important things in their life and to stay busy and to neglect their primary relationships, to focus on their, to get their priorities out of whack and to be dissatisfied. I think he's painting a picture of a way Christian young women live that will make their lives look different than their society and culture and the expectations we have. A family that is characterized by mutual love and respect is one that looks different than marriages that are marked by constant arguments and passive-aggressive comments. Women who, even when things are hard, seem to enjoy their husbands and enjoy their children is in contrast to the, the people we see who are always wanting to do whatever they can to escape their family. And people who talk about their spouse with respect and adoration look different than the people who are critical all the time of their partner. Healthy marriages and families that live out this teaching draw people in because it is different. And that phrase, busy at home, doesn't mean you are only busy at home. It's implied, I mean, there's probably lots of things that you're busy about. This doesn't mean young women are on, only work at home. This is recognizing that the younger women, particularly those with a husband and small children, have a lot to manage in their home, and they need to do it well and not neglect it. In the first century, it would not have been uncommon for someone to have help in their household. So the responsibility doesn't just fall on younger women. If you need to get childcare and have a cleaner in your house so that all these responsibilities get taken care of, by all means. But this is an invitation for women not to neglect this primary responsibility in relationship. They are not like the worldly women of Crete. This is not a woman who goes out partying every night of the week or who's a workaholic and stays late at the office all the time or who is lazy and slothful and avoids taking care of her adult responsibilities. And if you're in the room and you're single and you already want to tune me out because you think this doesn't apply to me, I think it's figuring out how this does apply to you. It's thinking through how do I balance being a good worker and a good daughter and a good sibling and a good neighbor and a good friend? How do I balance my focus on everything I have to do and keep my priorities right? How do I not become a workaholic and get my identity in my job but keep my identity in Christ? Because I think the temptation when you're younger and maybe are more available is to be the first one to put your hand up to stay late in the office or to take that next project, and then you end up never being able to spend time with your friends or family or take care of your house. And so I think it's that we are all tempted to keep our life out of balance. So how can you work towards balance and health and relational richness that looks different than what the world has to offer? And sometimes that balance seems impossible 
when our society says to stay busy, to achieve more, to work harder, to be the perfect wife, the perfect mom, have the best social life, and make it all look easy on Instagram. And this is where I think the multi-generational model that is in verse 3 is so important. In the midst of a hard season, it can be difficult to see how it can be good. But if you are struggling in an area and there's an older woman, an older woman that you can see who's done it and and has modeled what is good, look to her. Let her teach you. If you're trying to figure out how to love your husband and your children well or how to balance your career with family or how to maintain deep friendship and community while feeling pulled in a million different directions, look at the women ahead of you and watch them live their life. Paul also encourages the young women to be self-controlled and pure. The word self-controlled is mentioned a lot in this passage for both men and women, and it means the same throughout, to be reasonable and not reckless. Younger women are not meant to be impulsive or thoughtless, but rather be intentional and thoughtful in their behaviors. And that word pure is very similar to the word reverent. They're meant to be holy. And when you put self-control and holy together, I think it means that these younger women are meant to seek after holiness, to strive to be more and more like Jesus through spending time with him. She has made pure, she is made pure by the gospel of Jesus, and her life reflects that. She is maturing in her faith and growing more and more like Christ. And lastly, a younger woman is meant to be kind. Kindness is one of those words that I feel like provides so much more dividend than investment. <laughs> it doesn't take much kindness to have a huge impact. And as we are shaped by the Holy Spirit in our lives, the fruit will be kindness. We will look out for that outsider. We will speak words of encouragement, and we will seek to be, count, count, we will seek to be kind to the people we encounter throughout our day. I think this is the picture that Paul paints of a younger woman kind, self-controlled, loving, and balanced. And it's the opposite of what we see in the world, and so it makes the gospel more attractive. And we're going to finish off with what Paul has to say to the younger men. And he only has one thing to say, be self-controlled. And this makes me laugh, right? Because in every other category, there's this list of things to do, and it's kind of lived out. And then the younger men, he basically just says, be (laughs) self-controlled. Think before you do something stupid, right? Um, Our frontal lobes aren't fully developed until we're 25, and that's the area that does judgment and reasoning. So it makes sense that he addresses the the younger men this way. It does make sense, because I think young men are normally competitive. They're ambitious. They're selfish. They're reckless. They're spontaneous. And he just says, verse 6, be self-controlled in everything. So that in everything actually belongs to verse 6. He says, in every part of your life, in everything you do, be self-controlled. It means to be sober-minded. It means to think before you act. It means to switch on your brain and think, is this good? Is this wise? Is this right? Is this honoring to God? If you're a younger man, it means controlling your emotions so you don't lash out. It means being self-controlled with your tongue so you, you think, is this going to be helpful to say this? It means to be self-controlled with your sexual urges so you're thinking, no, no, no. I'm not going to pursue that. I'm not going to give in to that temptation. And to be honest, what helped me as a younger man to be self-controlled was not, not a, a long list of things that I couldn't, couldn't do. What helped me most as a younger man is seeing the older men who were self-controlled. And as I witnessed the older men 
practicing self-control and living these beautiful godly lives, I think, I want to be like that. So if you're a younger man here this morning, who are the, the models in your life? Who are the people that you're giving permission to, to speak into your life? Who's walking alongside you saying, how are you going like this? Because we cannot do the Christian life alone. We just can't do it. When, when you're alone as a younger man, when nobody is watching you and holding you accountable, that's when Satan gets a foothold and he tempts you and you're tempted to compromise. Verse 7, Titus to be the example. He says to Titus, set them an example. By doing what is good, be an open book. I think the word here is authenticity, living an authentic life. So what you say is what you do. In your teaching, show integrity. So Titus, please don't preach and don't put it into practice. You should never have people who think, gosh, he says one thing up front but does another thing behind closed doors. In your teaching, show seriousness. So is that that gravitas to your teaching. You don't make a flippant comment just to get a laugh. No, you have a deep, thoughtful comment about God and soundness of speech. So it's not just true, but it's life-giving. He's saying, Titus, be the model to these younger men. And we all need that, don't we? So how do we live this out? What does this look like in our church today? Um, We've just looked at a text that categorizes people in really four very specific categories. And the truth is, in this room, you may not necessarily feel like you fit. Maybe you feel young at heart or like you have an old soul. And it's not this rigid fix. You do turn 40 and you level up to be the older man or woman. Um, I think these four categories are a great place to start. But again, I want to pull back and see what the bigger picture is for us to be able to, to live this life empowered by the Spirit. For example, I read this and I personally look at it and go, I know I am a younger woman and an older woman at the same time. There are women in this room that look to me as an older woman and I feel challenged by that. I want to be that reverent teacher. I want to be able to pour into their lives. But on the flip side of the side, there are women I look to and who are a little bit older than me and I think, oh, I want to I watch you. I want to learn from you. I want you to be my teacher. Both of those categories apply to me. And I think that's true of everyone in this room. We all can be challenged to live this intergenerational ministry, live in an intergenerational community, looking for those younger than us to mentor and those older than us who can be our teachers. I also think it's important to relate across all four of those categories. I can learn from the older men and I have an opportunity to teach younger men. I think the church works best when it fully reflects the image of God. And we learn from each other regardless of age, stage, or gender. And this is how disciples are made. This is intergenerational ministry. Living alongside one another and learning. Seeing healthy marriages and saying, I like that. I want more of that. I want to spend time with those people and learn from them because I want my marriage to be healthier. It's building a community of rich relationships where you feel known and loved. So when your non-Christian friends see you and they feel isolated and they feel like, they're lonely and they don't feel connected, then they look at you and go, wow, there's something different about your relationships. It's struggling in a parenting stage and having people one step ahead of you that you can ask questions, that you can learn from. It's not buying into our society that says, work hard and then retire early and live life for yourself. It's looking for places and people to serve even if you feel like you've done your time. It's not waiting for the church to put on a program for you to serve or volunteer or to be mentored. It's creating community organically. 
where we are all learning from each other. And this is why we don't have silos of congregations. We don't have a young service and an old service and a married service and a single service. Um, it's why we intentionally put people in connect groups so that you can learn from one another because you're in different ages and stages. And it's honestly why we're trying to start this program on Tuesdays called Encounter, because we want it to be a place where all of the women in the church feel welcome. As Christians, we are meant to live lives that are empowered by the Spirit, and that we are to seek rich, gospel-centered community. And when we do this, it looks different, and it makes the gospel more attractive. Our church distinctives of real relationships, deliberate discipleship, and engaging evangelism come to life. So the watching world is not impressed. It's not impressed by extremism and hype. But it's impressed by you living ordinary lives, godly lives, shown in love. Imagine this church where we were truly diverse, age, stage, gender, ethnicity. Imagine a church where the younger people here were humble enough to say, I need to learn, I do not know it all. Imagine a church here where at 10 o'clock where the older people didn't just want to hang out with all the other empty nesters, but they actually wanted to invest in the lives of people who were younger. Imagine a church here where maybe you might choose to go to a congregation that you wouldn't naturally choose to go to because there are people there that you could serve and that you could disciple and that you could witness to. And imagine a church where an unbeliever walked in today as they sat amongst us, as they watched you every morning tea, they would go, wow, these people really are different. We really are different. Maybe then the gospel of Jesus Christ would really be very attractive. Let me pray. Father, I want to thank you for your gospel of grace. Thank you, Father, that you love us with this lavish love. And Lord, we want to be people who shine that love into the lives of others. Father, we want to be a church that is honestly intergenerational from naught to 90 volts. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for times when we have been arrogant and proud and think, and think that we know it all. We pray for the older men, the older women, that we would uh, be modeling that godliness, that holiness. And we ask that we would show us those, those younger people that we can serve alongside and walk alongside. And Father, we ask that the Bridge Church might be a church where the gospel really is adorned by the way that we live. In Jesus' name.